0: How how long ago was the uh, PBS interview?
1: May April. Oh, this, this year? year. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It was for um for New York, but out in New York, but it was it was really cool. I was, I was like, I always wanted to be like the historian that was interviewed in a documentary, and I'm like, oh, now I am. <laughs> <laughs> how
0: did, did they did PBS reach out to you? for that piece? so
1: they were doing the piece on the thomas cole historic site and i had been doing work with thomas cole with the thomas cole site and so the Thomas they they were pbs was doing a thing with them and they were like oh well you need to talk to her too so then they reached out to me that way
0: yeah oh. it was really cool yeah well, and, and um so you had to travel out to new york i was
1: living in new york at the time oh okay yeah yeah oh, wow. so i grew up in southeast michigan but i've lived in wisconsin and new york at the same time hmm. well not like I lived in Wisconsin for two and a half years. I lived in New York for a year and a half. We moved back to Michigan in May of this year. Okay. Yeah.
0: And what is uh, Thomas Cole?
1: Thomas Cole was an artist. He was He's considered the founder of the Hudson River School of Art um, back in like the 1800s. His, uh, you're probably familiar with his work and you don't even know it. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, um, I mean, he had a really good eye for capturing like, the light and the river and the scenery, but like what I focused in on is like what he, what he didn't include or if he did include it, like what was like he didn't really include like indigenous folks, but when he would include them, they would be like super miniature, minute little things in his paintings, and you'd be like, okay, so what are we actually talking about here? So it was like, kind of, I was really into analyzing his art.
0: Oh, very but cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he, um. His home, his studio and home were in Catskill, New York, Um, and then just across the, which is on the west side of the Hudson River, and then on the east side of the river, literally across is the home of Frederick Church, who was one of Thomas Cole's students, Um, and he really took the Hudson River School of Painting to the next level, and so it was really, it's really his home, if you ever get to, if you ever can go to upstate New York, and you can go either Thomas Cole or Frederick Church's house I would go to Frederick Church's house which is Olana because the architecture the decor it's so unique and interesting like mm-hmm. and it sits atop of one of the mountains and so like you can look down and see the valley and it's really cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: I I feel like with uh New York I tend to be like this. I only think of New York City but then totally. I forget about everything else yeah
1: new york is deceivingly big and so like when people are like oh you lived in new york i was like not the cool part like (laughs) like i didn't live in the city but um i would go to the city we were about two hours north of the city so i would just take the train in which was really nice and convenient but yeah there's there's so much history the further out of the city you go that yeah a lot of people do forget that there's a whole other state attached to new york city and yeah, so everybody forgets about the rest of it.
0: <laughs> I am, yeah, I'm very, very much guilty of that. Um, <laughs> Heather, really quick, because yeah. I, I did start recording. Oh, okay. um, I like to do these just rolling intros. Totally, okay, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to just give a proper introduction. Uh, hi, everybody out there. My name is Chris, this is Cheatash and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Heather Bruegel, am I pronouncing that right? Bruegel. Bruegel, yeah. okay, Bruegel. Okay, I'm sorry about that.
1: That's okay.
0: Um, Heather, really quick, can you give a brief introduction about uh, yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah, yeah. So my name is Heather. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, uh, first-line descendant stockbridge Muncie. I work as a historian, um, public historian, lecturer, curator, researcher, consultant, um, focusing primarily in on uh, indigenous histories, uh, creating inclusive spaces, um, creating inclusive curriculums that really um, weave in Indigenous narratives into places where you may not actually see them. So I kind of just do a little bit of everything. Mm. And
0: how long have you been doing this?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, I think actively since 2016. Okay. Yeah, it's, been, it's, it's become more active in the last few years, but I really started doing... Um, like public talks in 2016.
0: Okay, it, um, it, we were just talking to before recording that I know you have some presentations coming up. Yeah, um, and then you do some of them in person, some of them Zoom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was that during like the especially like during the pandemic? lots of zoom talks more so than in person
1: definitely lots of zoom talks i think what happened during the pandemic is we all had to adapt to creating this new world that we were living in right and i think what it did is it we all became familiar with zoom and teams and um, skype and like all of those other uh devices used to be able to to talk to people and what it did though is it made a lot of information more accessible and so at the start of the pandemic I was living in northeast Wisconsin I'm um, in a very rural area and um, I was able to you know people that I had worked with you know when I was living in Michigan at the time uh, beforehand uh, were reaching out and we saying hey you know we're moving a lot of our stuff to virtual you know would you mind doing virtual talks and I was like well, I've never done that before, but yeah, let's give it a try. And so, um because even though I, I won't necessarily say we're post pandemic, but we're we're slowly starting to come out of it, I like the concept of virtual, or hybrid talks because of the accessibility that it gives to people. You know where you know there are immune compromised people who maybe can't be in large crowds anymore. Well, we want them to still have access to the information. So um, even though I'm back home in Michigan, um, if we can, st- if this allows me to present um, to talks in Washington State, um, which I did in um, in November, or even back out east in New York and Massachusetts, which I also did um i just think it creates a bigger audience and uh it's just it's more inclusive it's more accessible and um i as weird as it was at first i I think i've gotten pretty used to doing talks on zoom yeah (laughs) yeah
0: has public speaking always come easy for you
1: i don't know if it's always come easy but it hasn't been hard Mm -hmm. um i so i think you know my first introduction to public speaking was um I think I was in graduate school I went to graduate school locally here in Michigan and I um we had to do presentations right and so well actually I had to do presentations in undergraduate as well now that I think about it and I just never really had an issue with getting up in front of people and talking like it was just like okay whatever and then um it's never I mean I think the first time I did a talk outside of school like Okay, I'm not getting graded on this, you know whatever. Um I think I had a little bit of nerves and now the nerves only seem to hit when I'm about to do a talk that is big or the audience is big or the location is big. Um and then I'm like, "Oh, am I am I really here?" It's more of like a am I really here kind of moment, like I'm used to talking in museums and libraries and now I'm talking on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. So it's like oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> so it's like that hits me, but I think the minute I start talking, it's just it that that nervousness and that fear just kind of goes away.
0: What's the biggest crowd that you've spoken in front of?
1: Um The biggest crowd that I've spoken in front of that I think there were actual numbers for was in 20 2017? No, wait. Hold on. I don't know. It was one of the women's marches. Mm-hmm. It was in Lansing. So it was 2017 or 2018. I can't remember. Okay. Um, and I opened, I was part of Women's March Michigan at the time, and I opened up that march. And I think um, it's a good thing I couldn't see I mean, I could see out into the crowd, but I couldn't like really see. And I think it's good because I think there were like a few hundred thousand people that were oh, there. Wow. And I was like, holy crap. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> would that have, uh, would like the, if you did know the number, would it have made you a little more anxious or?
1: Um, I think maybe it would have get, made me a little anxious like i think that's also really the only time that i had what I was going to say written down verbatim. Usually I just go off notes and I'm kind of not ad li- ad-libbing, but I mean as a historian I tend to ramble. So it's like I'll see, you know, the notes that I have written and I'll say that, but then I'll end up going in something else. But it was at the that Women's March anniversary that I had my speech completely written down. And so I was able to like follow it, which was good because I may have forgotten what I was going to say <laughs> if I had known. <laughs>
0: Yeah, i I used to um, perform in front of audiences. Okay. I did stand up comedy for like a few years, and definitely in the beginning, it was kind of nerve wracking. And then after you do it for a while, you kind of get just used to it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Mike, um, how do my, you
1: handle getting heckled? Like, I don't understand.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I didn't, um, not very well. Okay, At least I didn't. Um, I wasn't like very quick. Uh, or witty enough like you see some people bill burr i think is a great example of it who just comes up with things just on the cuff on the spot yeah yeah um i like your style though that you said um when you do uh present you kind of just roll roll with the punches a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like that i kind of do the same thing it's kind of what i do with the interviews like i have a plan definitely and i have questions but i I like kind of going off script a little bit too. Oh, for sure, totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but so your background, you mentioned you just mentioned uh, you have a, a graduate degree, a master's degree, is
1: it? I do, yeah, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I'm currently working on a doctorate.
0: Okay. Yeah. Oh, what was your master's in?
1: Uh, my master's was in U.S. history. Um, my undergraduate degree was in U.S. history and political science, and my doctorate degree is in First Nations Education. Okay. Yeah.
0: And where are you currently uh, doing that doctorate at?
1: I'm doing it at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. Okay. So about it's a really cool program the way it's designed. They really designed it understanding that most of us have full-time jobs and we're working. And so we really only have to be on campus once a month. So oh, cool. once a month I drive to Green Bay um, and I do the school thing mm-hmm. and then um you know you have tons of work you do in between those class meetings but yeah it's pretty cool
0: and uh, when you're out there are, or you said that you're you're originally from wisconsin or so
1: my my family is from wisconsin my mom and my daughter from wisconsin i lived there from 2019 to 20 uh 21 but i was primarily raised in michigan
0: Oh, okay. Yep. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um and your your family is of you said Oneida descent? Oneida, yeah. Oneida. So my
1: mom my mom is indigenous. Um my my dad is not. Um but my mom was raised on the Stockbridge Muncie Reservation in Wisconsin, um, which is right next to the Menominee Reservation. They're about an hour and some change west of green bay so if you use green bay as your marking point if you just go west you'll run into the the stockbridge muncie reservation the oneida reservation uh is actually the city of green bay Uh, so a lot of um our reservation land um is in green bay and so my mom grew up on the stockbridge muncie reservation her dad is stockbridge muncie my so my maternal grandfather was stockbridge muncie my maternal grandmother is oneida and so that's where our Oneida bloodline comes in. Um, and then there's the whole complicated history of blood quantum and um, being enrolled and that because of all of that, um, my brother and my sister and I and I think majority of my first cousins uh, were all um, enrolled in Oneida because we didn't have enough. Uh, quote, blood to be enrolled in Stockbridge, Muncie. Um, And for those people who don't know, Stockbridge, Muncie are the Mohicans. They're the Mohican people. So um, I know everyone's like, oh, last of the Mohicans. Nope, we're still around. (laughs) We're still here. But um, yeah, so that's how we, that's how myself, my brother and sister are enrolled in Oneida and my mother is enrolled Stockbridge, Muncie.
0: Okay. Yeah. And your mother, uh, did she share this with you like at a very early age about uh your ancestry or did it did it come out like a little bit later in life
1: um to be quite honest I don't really recall in my younger years us really talking about our indigeneity or uh, being indigenous I think it was in something it was something that we inherit like when I say we I'm talking about my brother and my sister and myself that we inherently knew, but didn't maybe have a grasp on. Um, I remember growing up driving, um, no matter where we were living, driving to Wisconsin in the summertime and visiting the reservation and, um, going to powwow or visiting family, um, or staying at my uncle's cabin, which is my happy place and things like that later in life. Um, I would probably say high school age, I really started to ask questions and um, wanting to know more and um, trying to find out that information. Mm, Okay. Yeah.
0: You know, it's funny because I do have notes on this. I uh, um, was planning on asking you this later, but since it came up now, Mm. then um, reservations. Yeah. What is life like? on a reservation versus like just here like in a random city in Michigan is it are there differences similarities
1: um so not every reservation is the same i want to point that out i feel like a lot of times when people talk about reservations being poverty stricken areas right they only ever refer to one reservation that seems to be the example but not all reservations are like that so there are reservations that are located in major metropolitan areas and you know um maybe they weren't major metropolitan areas beforehand but they just like you know city just grew up around them so like Green Bay being one of them right and then I know out in um like uh the west coast um I think um, like Tacoma or um,
0: that's Washington. Yeah, sure. there's
1: like there's reservation land there. Um, in Oklahoma, like Tulsa is a major city. There's a reservation within that area. Um, and Oklahoma has a very interesting past when it comes to reservations. But it's you know it varies. Like I my experience with reservations have always been one of um really strong community building and. Um, family and history and just really great places to be Um, but are there struggles absolutely reservations were originally created in some of the most desolate parts of the United States this was supposed to be temporary They were supposed to be temporary areas for indigenous people to be on because the policy of the United States was to fix the Indian problem, was to get rid of us in some way, shape, or form, whether that that was through wars, boarding schools, assimilation policies, um, you know, or, you know, even death. Um, So reservations were only supposed to be temporary. So that's why I I, I tend to think that's why maybe they were put in the most – desolate of areas. Um, but that doesn't mean that you still don't get to know the land and understand the land and how to work it and how to make life survive. Right. And so I think the reason that, you know, as indigenous people, as we're still here is because our, our ancestors and our elders found a way to work with whatever land they were put on. And and kind of made it work and and work for the betterment of our people. And
0: I have this notion. I don't. Um, I don't know if a lot of people have this like a, a reservation. It's like its own um, kind of country in a way, mm-hmm. or like it has its own laws and it kind of does stuff that they. It doesn't necessarily have to follow like what the United States does. Is that true in any sense?
1: So. Tribal nations are, are said to be sovereign nations. So federally recognized tribes are sovereign nations. We have our own tribal constitutions, our own court systems, our own laws and ordinances, um, but we're still under the arm of the federal government. So we're sovereign to an extent, is what I say. Um, and that, that's that's my own interpretation of how I view um and view indigenous nations but I think what a lot of people don't understand is like so for example the reservation land we don't actually own that the deed is held in trust by the federal government right and so we we have say over what happens on our tribal lands but we don't actually own our tribal lands so if my mom were to um, have a, a plot of land on the reservation, right, and she were to pass, which we hope doesn't happen for many, many, many more years, um, that land wouldn't get passed down to me, my brother, or my sister. It stays within that federal trust. So it you can't generate like that generational wealth through re, um, real estate or anything like that. Yeah. But it's it is interesting because I don't think a lot of people do know that On tribal reservations you know we have our own laws and ordinances and um, you know pass we may pass laws and ordinances that maybe the federal government isn't doing I know a lot of tribal nations before um, same-sex marriage was legalized in the United States a lot of tribal nations were passing their own ordinances legalizing it in their um, tribal nation so we sometimes go against the grain, I guess, so to speak. But it's, you know, it's it's very different for each tribal nation. But federally recognized tribes are sovereign nations in the fact that we have treaties that have been made with the United States and treaties um, can only be made between sovereign entities, right? And so example of a treaty would be like the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution. Um, We still uphold that treaty, right? We still were independent. We held Great Britain to their end of the bargain. They held us to our end of the bargain. The same should be given to tribal nations. And it isn't always. The U.S. has never upheld Fully, it's end of the bargain in a treaty made with a tribal nation. Um, but again, you can only make treaties because they are legally binding contracts with um, with other sovereign entities. So, if we weren't ever sovereign, you could never make a treaty with us. So, it's a weird, unique relationship that we could spend hours talking about (laughs) we can spend hours talking about it because it's really it's really interesting
0: no it that sounds like it and that kind of leads into this next question is so are there some uh tribes or nations out there that are not federally federally recognized but they still operate as hey we are a distinct Tribe. We're a distinct nation. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So there's federally recognized, there's state recognized, and then there's tribal nations that aren't recognized at all. Oh, um wow. and it's uh it's an interesting process. And not all states have state recognized tribes. Like they won't like it's not an obligation of the state. It's not one of their enumerated powers or whatever. Um mm-hmm. it's a it's a choice that the state makes to do like I know that there was just an amendment or a resolution introduced in the state of New York to bring back the state to have them have the authority to recognize um, state recognized tribes like like to be able to say oh we're going to recognize the state and I don't think it passed so it's like the state can make that decision of whether they want to do that or not um, and then there are tribal nations that aren't recognized at all, but that doesn't make them any less indigenous in my eyes. Um, I'm not, I'm not the gatekeeper to tribal identity. That's, that's not for me to decide. Um, but it's, it is interesting in how it works and how it sometimes creates a divide within Indian country itself, you know, like, um, who's recognized, who's not recognized, who's indigenous, who's not indigenous. So it gets very complicated and, and sometimes really messy. Um, and this is not me passing judgment because I understand, you know, how our ways have changed with, um, with colonization. Um, but I'm also very much of the opinion. It's not for me. To decide who who does that, my tribal governments take care of that. Um, mm-hmm. And nor would I ever want to be in tribal government to ever have to deal with with any of that. But like in my eyes, it doesn't make you less indigenous if you're recognized or not recognized at all. Do,
0: are, are there some tribal nations out there who like are they want to be federally or state recognized, and are there some out there that also? Like they don't want anything, anything to do with it
1: yeah so I don't know what the I don't know what the exact process is to be state recognized but I do know to be federally recognized It is a process there's all this paperwork and everything you have to fill out and then um it goes to the um Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Department of the Interior there's and it's a long process it's not like you fill out your paperwork you turn it in and um you know in in a month or so you're recognized it can take Mm. years so I it does definitely it is a process and there are Tribal nations that are are probably going through that process right now. I don't know of any who just say, you know, screw it. We don't want to be recognized at all. But I don't necessarily blame any tribal nation who doesn't because that's putting a lot of trust in the federal government. Mm. And as indigenous people, we've been and other communities of color. Been completely screwed over by the federal government time and time again, so I get that distrust. Um, I know at one point there was a movement um, in Hawaii for um, to have um, uh, the in, the Native Hawaiians to form together to be recognized, you know, by the federal government as you know sovereign entities, and then there was another movement saying, "No, we don't want that." Mm-hmm. I get why you don't want it. I mean, I don't think Hawaii should be a state at all. I think Hawaii should be given back to the Native Hawaiians, mm. um, definitely. And so, I get, I get why you want to be recognized, but I also see why you wouldn't.
0: I, I was just about to say, are there? It, there's got to be some, like, uh, what's it called? Like advantages and disadvantages to being recognized or not recognized, in- and. <laughs> Does that kind of play into like decisions that are made?
1: Yeah, I think so. When you're recognized, there's more access to um, governmental grants, contracts. Um, There's also the enforcement of your treaty rights um, and things like that. Um, Not necessarily so much when you're not recognized, but at the same time, if we're really... And again, this is just my opinion. And I think about a lot of things, like just randomly think about them. And I do a lot of thinking out loud. Um, but I'm like, if we're really sovereign, do we need that recognition? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because we know we're sovereign, right? We, we were given this sovereignty by our creator, no one else, right? And so we understand that and, or I understand that. So it is, it's interesting. But yeah, there are definitely colonial advantages to being recognized Mm, okay yeah
0: on in on reservations as far as uh education goes is that something is there a difference between like schools or let me ask you this i guess first are are there like schools just specifically for people that live on the reservation like they have their own school system elementary high schools etc
1: some do some tr- yeah. some tribal nations are large enough that they can operate their own um, elementary and secondary schools and even tribal colleges oh, wow. so um, so some are large enough not every I think there's only I think there's less than 50 um, tribal oh, wow. colleges in the United States mm-hmm. but they're all accredited and you can get two year and four year degrees there um, just like you would go to like schoolcraft or um yeah uh occ or any th- places like that so they're mm-hmm. you know they're very much tribal colleges and universities that uh, operate just as any other uh community college or university would operate
0: okay yeah but, uh those that have that system are they able to like uh teach kind of uh, i guess like whatever they want to teach without having like the state of wisconsin or state of michigan like having like a certain curriculum that they have to teach
1: so i believe and i'm not 100 percent sure on this you can there's i think there's more of an incorporation of um culture language tribal history that is emphasized in in the tribal schools mm-hmm. but you also remember we we're preparing these students to go off into the world, however that may be. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there are still standards that you have to meet. And I do know a couple of um, teachers, educators who do teach at tribal schools, and, you know, they still have to deal with the same thing, you know, SATs and oh, and okay. all of that. Yeah, so yeah. it's not completely different. I think there's more freedom to incorporate culture in into the tribal school curriculum, but they're still, I mean, they still got to meet the rest of the standards that other students would have to meet now
0: um another aspect to uh to life on reservations uh policing mm-hmm. and how does that work uh for people living on a reservation is did, is there like their own police force versus just like the the cities or like the counties uh police force um, enforcing law in that area
1: yeah yeah so tribal reservations if they are large enough and they have enough funding Um, and they're able to do so, do have their own police force. Um, Smaller communities, maybe they only have one or two tribal officers, but they may have a contract or work in conjunction with um, county police or local uh, state police. Um, But that gets kind of complicated when you look at um, jurisdiction of, of tribal nations. Most of the jurisdiction falls under federal jurisdiction. Um, So you would contact your tribal police, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs Police, FBI, things like that. But then there are six states in the United States that have something called Public Law 280, which um, gives the jurisdiction, um, which hands over some tribal jurisdiction to states. So it gets a little bit more complicated. Michigan is not one of those. Michigan is not a public law 280 state, um, but like Wisconsin is. And um, there are six other states or five other states that I can't mm-hmm. remember off the top of my head. I only know Wisconsin is because I lived there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it you know, sometimes there are, again, like, you know, there's partnerships maybe with county and state police, but... If a tribal nation is able to have their own police force, there's nothing that says that they can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You and I've heard you mention now Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, what What exactly is that?
1: Well, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is. Um, it's uh, It was first under the when it was founded. It was founded under the War Department, which is now the Department of Defense, but the um, it's now under the Department of the Interior. Okay, and so, um, if and this is just interesting. The Department of Interior deals with fish and wildlife and okay. land. And now you have the Bureau of Indian Affairs under there, so it's like they're putting us in the same category as fish and wildlife mm. and land, which is just something really interesting to think about within itself. <laughs> yeah. um, but the Bureau of Indian Affairs was founded um, to pretty much oversee affairs in Indian country. Um, whether that be boarding schools, whether that be, um, uh, allotments or, uh, reservations, um, tr- uh, uh, keeping track of, um, uh, uh, like blood quantum, mm. uh, tribal roles who's on a roll, who's not on a role things like that um and um now you know the department of the interior and the bureau of indian affairs have taken on um oh they also handle um like federally recognized tribes like if you're submitting those applications like they kind of look over those as well okay. um but they kind of are now also overseeing other issues within indian country so there's been a lot of work in the last few years regarding um the history of boarding schools in this country uh indigenous boarding schools and so they've been collecting data and information and conducting community um, uh, town halls to hear stories from boarding school survivors and really gather this information so there's a lot so the bureau of indian affairs has kind of evolved over the last you know couple centuries um from an from an, a department that was really founded Almost on the harm of indigenous people to now that is one that's like, hey, how can we work within Indian country? How can we, um, you know, help people and make it better and things like that? So it's been a department that has really evolved and the um, assistant secretary uh, who oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs is actually an indigenous person, Brian Newland from Michigan. Um, and the Department of the Interior, the Secretary of the Department of Interior, is headed by Deb Holland, who is also Indigenous. So it's oh. pretty cool that we have two Indigenous people in those roles right now.
0: And is that something, like the Bureau of Indian Affairs then, is that currently located in D.C.?
1: Yes, yes, the main offices are in D.C. Okay. There are BIA offices throughout the country. Um, I once did a training um for some museum work in a BIA office in Minneapolis, so they're all over. But the main hub, because the because the Department of the Interior is located in DC, so is the BIA. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, you've mentioned a couple things, and I, I'm like having trouble. Which which way do I go? Because I wanted to ask you about all these. <laughs> um, I guess uh, blood quantum. Yeah. Because I, I know you mentioned that earlier too. Yeah. And is that. Something similar to, you know, I think I I know a big thing now is um what are they called the uh, uh, genealogy tests like mm-hmm. 23andMe yeah, yeah. ancestry.com yeah. Is does Blood Quantum have to do with that and like tracing your ancestry no oh okay
1: no 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 Blood Quantum is so just for notice I don't know of any tribal nations enrollment department enrollment department that uses dna to determine whether or not you're a citizen of that tribe because all it's going to tell you is that you're you know x percentage indigenous right doesn't tell you who though you are so blood quantum was a concept that really um it's a colonial concept that is really um i think first really talked about where we see written record of it is in like the 1700s and what was the Virginia colony at the time before Virginia became a state. And um, it really focused in on those Virginia laws really focused in on preventing um, uh, interracial marriage. And so if you were, you know, X amount of, you know, X amount black or X amount indigenous you know you couldn't marry you know a white person or and vice versa so we kind of see it starting to be written down in the 1700s and then as history moves on we see this concept develop more fully and we see it written in treaties in the United States on between the US and indigenous nations and basically i guess in the most simplest of terms is what it boils down to is what percentage of your blood is whatever tribe you could be in, right? And so what they did is they started to create these base roles or base census records. Um, and they, you know, each tribe maybe uses a base role from a different year. It's really up to that tribal nation. Um, but like everyone who's on that role, let's say, you know, everyone who's on the 1860 role for whatever tribe, you are all deemed this amount of blood. It could be full, it could be half, whatever. So then all of those descendants now from that, your percentage is figured out that way. So for me, I am definitely um, like, if I looked at lineage, I'm like half indigenous, right? Half, maybe a little bit more. But through family uh, lineage records, we can prove Um, based on what my grandmother's quantum would would be or would have been, um, she, you know, we can take that and you divide what her quantum is amongst her children and then you take what theirs is and you divide it amongst what their children is and so that's where we come in which is why me, my brother, and my sister couldn't be enrolled in the same tribe that my mom is enrolled in because the quantum wasn't there. There wasn't enough blood. So we... So the tribe that my mom is enrolled in and the tribe that I'm enrolled in, their, their requirement is one quarter of one kind. So even though you might be more, you might be multiple. There are uh, people, indigenous people walking around who have multiple, um, you know, indigenous blood in their, in their bodies. But if they can't prove the one quarter of one kind, you can't be enrolled and so it, each tribe is different. That's just what mine is. Some go off of just lineal descent. Some go off of a combination of lineal and quantum. Some have a higher quantum. Some have a lower quantum. It all varies. It all varies. And I know that um, there have been tribal nations in the past few years that are really looking at their enrollment policies and looking at population, their tribal population, and, like, how can we make this more... How, how do do we need to rework our blood quantum do we need to rework our enrollment to make sure that you know a hundred years from now our people are still here so it's to me it's it is a concept that was introduced by the federal government to help perpetuate and commit a slow genocide of indigenous people because as long as indigenous people are here and tribal nations and tribal governments still exist, the federal government still has a treaty obligation to hold up mm. that can become costly, right? That's funding and things that they would love to free up, right? And use for other things that's access to tribal lands. And so, but as long as we're still here, they still have to hold up their end of the bargain. So quantum is, it's a real touchy subject. It's a real sensitive topic. Um, and it's, It's complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's it sounds like it. Um, y- you've mentioned roles. Uh, in did you say that that's essentially like a census? Like I've heard mm-hmm. of, yeah. Um, is like one of the famous ones I've heard of. This name, the Dawes. The Dawes roles. rolls, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, that was essentially like if I think about a census that you fill out. Like uh, I get a thing in the mail or something uh, every ten years, and yeah, uh, it asks me some personal information, bio, uh, biographical information. I can't remember what I filled out on it, but um,
1: it's kind of a something similar. It's something similar, yeah. The Dawes rolls were uh, created um, during the era of the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act was uh, signed into law in 1887, and so the Dawes Act, also known as the General Allotment Act, what it did is it took reservation land and it divided it amongst... Um, male heads of household, and any, quote, surplus land that was left over was sold to non-Native people. Um, and so it's ki- it was kind of breaking up the reservation system, breaking up uh, reservation land, getting rid of Indian land. And so, the but in order to get a allotment, you had to be on a tribal roll. You had to be on a roll. And so that's where this formal process of... Um, lineage and quantum and being listed as a tribal member or whatever started to come into play. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: Talking about all this, uh, especially when you mentioned boarding schools, this Mm -hmm. reminds me of a very famous show uh, that's been going on, Yellowstone. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, there's been uh, two offshoots of it, uh, 1883 and then 1923. Mm -hmm. Um, My girlfriend and I watched... 1883 and 1923 yeah. um 1923 a big part of the story is uh are these boarding schools mm-hmm. um it was actually probably uh probably my favorite part of uh viewing that show um and it doesn't they aren't nice no and they aren't portrayed very and have you seen the shows
1: i have oh, it's my guilty pleasure yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. so I absolutely. I'm, and I'm admitting this to all your podcast listeners. They're not the best of shows, but I can't stop watching them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that
0: I, I just I couldn't believe. Um, like from what you've seen, especially with that 1923 and and the boarding school yeah. uh, aspect of the show, is, is that relatively accurate? Do they get some things right about how? Um, how these people were treated mm-hmm. at these boarding schools?
1: Yeah, boarding schools um, were were places of torture. They were places of torture. Um, my grandparents were in a religious boarding school um, up in, in northeast Wisconsin. And um, th- from the stories I've been told, their boarding school was not as harsh as, as some other ones. But I think the portrayals... That you get in shows like Nineteen Twenty Three, or if you're familiar with Reservation Dogs, on Hulu, there's mm. an episode um, in season three, which is their final season. It's not going to be airing anymore, but it went out in a very, very beautiful way. There's an episode um, in season three that um, they talk about uh, boarding schools and the portrayals from you know from history we know are are pretty accurate. Um, in in Canada, they did. Uh, they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which talked about the treatment of of Indigenous children. In in Canada, they were called residential schools. In the United States, they're called boarding schools. Um, and to listen to the testimony of of those students and hear of those survivors and hear about the the physical, emotional, or sexual abuse that they endured is is absolutely awful. And um, I know the Department of the Interior here in the United States has gone on like a community tour and been in different areas. One of the stops they made was in Michigan because um, there, there were boarding schools in Michigan too. But, um, you know, listening to stories of those survivors and the descendants of survivors and understanding that, that trauma that's passed down, like when you learn that you're, you know, your parent or your grandparent or your great grandparent, you know, was in a boarding school, it helps you understand maybe some of the behavior that you saw from your parent or your grandparent, understanding that there's that disconnect because so much of the horrors that were committed in boarding schools, those traumas are passed down, whether they're passed down through toxic behaviors or passed down through our DNA like we carry that generational trauma with us um, it's uh, it's it's probably one of the most greatest atrocities um, that the U.S. has ever committed Um, and the whole point the whole point was to assimilate and and to deal with quote the Indian problem and to make us more like white and europeans and to you know get rid of our language and cut our hair and you know take our moccasins off and um you know practice christianity and all under the guise of wanting us to be more like europeans right it's 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 a very awful history that, at least in some portrayals that I've seen, have been pretty accurate. I mean, especially, I think, I think almost the religious-run boarding schools were worse because it was all done in the name of God, right? And if yeah. you can instill that fear of a Christian God and a child, right? Your priest or your nun is, is God on earth, right? You're not going to question that. You're going to think it's okay and you're going to think it's right. And this is to not dog on anyone's religion. I'm very much to each your own. You know, you pray to whatever God or don't pray to whatever God you want. That's totally fine. But I think the the harm that was inflicted on those children is going to be harm that is going to be carried down for generations to come. I mean, the last of the boarding schools in Canada – closed in the 90s that's not that long ago yeah the last of the boarding schools in the united states closed maybe just prior to that and so that history is still here and it's still very much alive and we still have elders alive today who survived those boarding schools so we're not that far removed from that history and it's so it's like this it's this double-edged sword where you want to collect the stories from those elders that are still alive about the boarding schools, but you also don't want to ask them the questions because you don't want to bring up that trauma. You want to be respectful of it and understand their pain. And um, Yeah, so I, I would say when it comes to shows like 1923, from what I could tell and from research that I have done, and I believe I'm pretty sure they had indigenous consult um, indigenous consultants on that show as well, which I thought was great. Um, it really portrayed the abuses that you were getting. Um, I was not prepared when I watched the show for the first time to see. Um, it was like all of a sudden I felt like we were going from a scene with Harrison Ford and Helen Miriam. And all of a sudden we were then thrust into a boarding school and it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I had to pause and walk away for a minute because I was like, was not mentally prepared for that. And Mm -hmm. came back and I was like, it's like I switched. It's like I turned off who I was as an indigenous person and just put on my historian hat. And I was like, okay. And but yeah, it those are those are tough histories, tough, tough, tough histories to have, to talk about.
0: Yeah, um, but, uh, two, two more questions in regards to this. How did mm-hmm. um, was there like a particular uh, uh, person, or was it like the the federal government that initiated uh, the these boarding schools?
1: Yeah, it was the federal government. Um, So there was an act that was passed in, I think it was 1819, called the Civilization Fund Act, Um, literally called Civilization Fund Act, and it was passed to help civilize indigenous people. Um, And part of that was this creation of government or religiously run boarding schools and so it they didn't really though take off until the late 1800s when you hear about like carlisle in pennsylvania and uh uh, richard henry pratt who ran carlisle um and the famous you know kill the indian save the man um and so kind of like late mid to late 1800s it kind of took off um but the the it's funny enough that um the The department that was part of funding, making sure funds got out to the boarding schools was the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it was, they were kind of founded in a modern era to make sure that funds were going out to these boarding schools. So it was, but it was definitely um, a product of the federal government because at that point, the Indian wars were getting costly, right? It's costing so much. War is costly. No matter who, who you're fighting, war is costly. And so at one point, they finally decided, you know what? It is cheaper for us to educate them and assimilate them that way than to keep going to war. And so that's when everything started to switch over.
0: And uh, conversely, how d- was there a particular uh person or like a particular movement that ended it here in the United States
1: um I think I'm gonna go out on a pretty radical limb here and say that I don't necessarily know that it's actually ended Mm. because we still feel the effects of it right so while the schools may have closed down Um, And even as the schools were closing down, though, there were other things that were happening that were still in works to try to um, assimilate Native children and take them out of their homes. You had children who were being adopted out into non-Native families. Um, and, um, then you had in, and because of that, we had the Indian Child Welfare Act that was passed in 1973 that said, Hey, 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 you can't, (laughs) you can't go take an Indian child without telling their parents and without, you know, doing all of that. So I think because we still see the effects of, of the boarding school era and this era of stolen children, I'm not actually sure that it's ended.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of sad that yeah. it still feel the effects of it today. Totally. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um you you mentioned that act um from President Jimmy Carter. Uh the um 1973
1: ICWA, yeah. Indian Child Welfare Act, yeah.
0: Yeah. Have there been I I guess I just don't hear about it like in in my lifetime other presidents doing Uh, acts like this, like, Mm -hmm. has there been um, any other significant, I guess, uh, legislation on the level of ICWA uh, that has been passed, like, as of recently, like, you know, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, Biden, anything?
1: So there has been, um, so the Violence Against Women's Act, VAWA, the reauthorization in 2013, and the reauthorization in 2020 were significant in the fact that it gave a little bit <clears throat> a little bit more authority to tribal courts to be able to arrest and prosecute non native individuals for crimes committed on the reservation against native women, right? So it did give a little bit more of that. Um there was also uh Savannah's act which was passed which dealt with um savannah's act and the not invisible act were also passed and signed into law and that dealt that deals with missing and murdered indigenous women savannah's act specifically deals with data's collect data collection um at the federal government level because we don't have data at the federal level that talks about um how many missing and or murdered indigenous women two-spirited um trans young men um are are missing and the not invisible act works towards creating better communication and um, between the Department of the Interior the Department of Justice um, and how can we create uh, better ways of intergovernmental communication while also working towards why is there this violence against indigenous people Um, And it also formed the Not Invisible Act Commission, which is a commission made up of attorneys, um, uh, survivors, and families who have lost uh, uh, a family member due to uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and or people, um, to come up with recommendations to give the Department of Justice. Um, So those, I think, are pretty significant um, in terms of that, I know there's legislation that's being introduced. Uh, one right now that's being introduced deals with boarding schools and um, along the lines of creating like a truth and reconciliation commission, but here in the U.S. Um, and I think to my knowledge, I'm sure there's more, but I think off the top of my head, that's all I can remember at the mm-hmm. moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, I wonder, like, how come... How come, like, that it's such a big problem? Like, like you had just mentioned, um, like people go missing or like mm-hmm. violence against uh, Indigenous women. Like, how do we know, like, why that is such a big issue, or like why it happens so often?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's definitely it has its roots in colonization, um, with Indigenous people being viewed at as viewed as disposable, right? So first and foremost, if you go back and you read the journals of Christopher Columbus, you can see how he wrote about the indigenous people in the Caribbean and how he wrote about indigenous women and how um, indigenous women were trafficked, right? Not amongst just his men, but, you know, also sent back to Spain and so on and so forth. Um, And what I think we tend to see, I think what tends to happen is when you View a group of people as less than. Primarily in this country, I think we tend to view black and brown folks as less than. It's ingrained. It's institutional at this point. Um, it's as American as apple pie. And I think when we view those communities like that, it's easier to look away or not pay attention or to not care. You know, when when someone in that community goes missing right particularly when it comes to indigenous folks and i want to it's it's primarily indigenous women but also you know our two-spirited folks our folks from the lgbtq plus you know community um even our men you know some men and young boys um also go missing so it's primarily women but it's it's all of us all of us can experience violence in some way shape or form i think because there's lack of funding there's lack of interest there's lack of data at the federal level there's lack of um caring and and task force and all that it's easy to see how these indigenous folks can slip through the cracks and not really care and it's really interesting because i do do a talk about um missing and murdered indigenous women um, and in that talk, I specifically talk about the case of Gabby Petito, who was a non native woman who not that long ago went missing and everybody yeah. was looking for, her. I remember opening I up remember my that. Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like she was everywhere, right? She was yeah. everywhere. And what I emphasize to people, I emphasize two things from the time that Gabby was reported missing until the time that she was tragically found. It was only eight days. That's eight days. That's pretty fast. Mm. That is pretty fast. Yes, she was found deceased already. And that's really, really sad. But her family got that closure. Right. And it was only eight days in that same area where Gabby was found. Seven hundred and ten other indigenous women had been reported missing. And I can guarantee you nobody knows their names. Mm. So we have to think about that. Gabby was a young white girl. Her life ahead of her. Right. And it's absolutely 110% tragic because her life was taken so suddenly and so horrifically. But what about Kimberly Iron or Kay Sarah Stops Pretty Places or Selena Not Afraid, right? We're not talking about those girls who were missing who may have been found but their perpetrators are still out there. We mm. know what happened to Gabby, mm. right? We know there's evidence but nobody else talks about you know Hannah Scott or any of these other girls who have gone missing in the same area I don't I don't understand why we don't talk about it and why it seems to not be such an important issue and it should be everybody should know we right. should not be struggling in the indigenous community it should not only be known in our in the indigenous community everybody should know about it and when one of our young girls or our young men or a member of our two-spirited or LGBTQ family goes missing, it should be making the news like every other missing person in the United States. But black and brown communities always seem to get the short end of the stick.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's really sad that that happens.
1: Yeah, and that was my soapbox. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: no, that is, uh, yeah, I wish it wasn't like that. That's really sad. Yeah. Um, to, to switch gears a little bit yeah. and, uh, the work that you do, uh, I was reading on your website, uh, you were involved or you started this, uh, initiative called the forge project. Is that correct?
1: I was, yeah, I was part of the, um, the founding of this organization. Um, I was brought in as a consultant. Um, and then, uh, founding director of education for that initiative, um, which is located in upstate New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually why I moved to New York. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Connecting the dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it,
0: it, what did uh, what did that involve?
1: Um, that is an initiative that was started to help um, indigenous artists, writers, scholars, um really find a foothold in, in a world that maybe would seem out of reach to them, you know, um, bring awareness, bring um, uh, viability and, and imp- uh, a chance to be able to get their artwork or writing or what have you out into a world. And so it started with um, creating a fellowship, which uh, which I helped create, um, awarded to um, started with four and I think now it's up to six six uh, indigenous writers scholars academics however there was no there's no goal in mind you didn't have to have a specific project in mind mm-hmm. but as long as you were indigenous um, and you needed a, a space to do your work we were there to help provide that space and then work with you to put you in contact with galleries or museums or, you know, wherever to open doors that maybe weren't open for a lot of people, or you didn't know how to get to that point. Um, And so, yeah, it was, it was very rewarding to, to work with and meet some of these artists. And so through that work, I have made a number of great friends and, and contacts and met people I would have never thought in the million years I would have ever met, um, Mm -hmm. Just because of the work that we were doing, and so it was yeah, it was it was fun,
0: yeah, yeah, oh, that's really cool, yeah uh to today, um and I know you said you work at uh, the Henry Ford um are you working on any other uh initiatives of like the same vein as the forge project right now?
1: Not as big, no, no no, no, not as big um I um work you know, I work primarily now as um a consultant where I am doing work with uh, businesses or cultural institutions uh, or museums that are looking to create spaces of inclusivity to talk about Indigenous history, do exhibits, things like that. So I have a couple of projects going on that'll go on through the next. Um, that will start in 2024. Uh, One of them is working with a library in in upstate New York that wants to expand their indigenous collection that they have and they have a great exhibit space and so they want to put on an exhibit and so I'll be curating that and I'm going to be working with a school district that wants to uh, not necessarily rewrite their curriculum but Include indigenous narratives into their curriculum. So it's, I've taken on a number of smaller projects um, because I feel like when you can do many smaller projects, you can tend to get the. The work done, get the good work out there. And um, my favorite thing to do though is connect um, people with other Indigenous folks that I know who specialize in something, and be like, "Oh, you know, I don't know a lot about that, but I know somebody who does." And that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things to do is to make these connections and to, um, you know, bring other Indigenous folks along with me and say, "Hey, here, how can I, how can I put you out into this?" And so I guess in a small way, I'm doing some of the work that I originally. Um, had started to do with with the previous organization but it's like I'm doing it more um, the way I want to do it and um, more on an individual personal level Mm -hmm. yeah
0: with these uh, topics that we've discussed today do you find is it hard to uh, get the word out there and spread uh, like the messages that Uh, that you want to spread or do you receive any sort of like um, disinterest like people don't there's not really like a huge interest in it or do you find are there a lot of folks out there libraries or other groups or other museums that that they have a real thirst for like this kind of uh, work that you're doing
1: yeah that's a really great great question and I think, for the most part, when it comes to working with institutions, people are hungry. They want the knowledge. They want the the information. How can we make this space inclusive? How can we include this? How can we include that? Um, and they want that work. They want to do that hard, um, uh, you know, internal work that has to get done. Love that. When it comes to public lectures and speaking people it's a mixed bag there are Mm -hmm. people who want the knowledge who come up to me afterwards and they're like i never learned that thank you for telling me that i'm gonna go out and tell you know who my best friend and i'm gonna read this book and you know because at the end of every lecture i always put out recommendations like read this or listen to this you know podcast all that Mm -hmm. And they're like, I'm going to watch that, or I'm going to listen to that, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's so great! I'm so excited for you. And then I get other people who just don't want to handle the truth, who can't handle the truth. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. I know. I know what I say is not going to resonate with a lot of people. It's not. It's not for everybody. Truth telling is hard it's very very hard and I've gotten pretty good um, in terms of I can feel when the mood in the room shifts uh, when I've said something and so what I've started to do is at the beginning of every talk I say you know what we're going to talk about x subject and I'm going to tell it to you in a way you probably haven't heard it before and it's going to make you uncomfortable and that's okay it's like i want to let people know right away you can feel uncomfortable that's totally fine it's totally normal um then you just sometimes get the people who just don't want anything of it Mm. and you get accused of you know revisionist history and i'm like it's not revisionist it's what actually happened um and that's actually one of the reasons why i think i gravitate towards history and why i like it is because facts are facts you can't change those right um I, but some people just can't handle it. And so, um, you know, I've been accused of like not being patriotic or... And I'm like, I think one of the most patriotic things we can do is to question. That, that's one of the most patriotic things we can do. And so it's 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 always a mixed bag. I'm not ever sure what I'm going to end up walking into. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: no, yeah, that's that's got to be uh, super challenging. And I, I do think back to... Um, I was going to ask you this about like yeah. my school or my schooling and like going to grade school, college. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember really going super in depth into these topics of uh, indigenous people's histories here in the United States. And mm-hmm. is is that something that um, I guess is that something that you found growing up to? And is it is it an issue in like the. I guess public schools, private schools here in America?
1: Yeah, totally. I don't recall ever really, other than like, you know, the making your little paper, like turkey hats or whatever at Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. Ugh, yeah. I don't really ever recall a really decent lecture on Indigenous history when I was growing up, even in college. I will say, even in college, I didn't, I don't mm-hmm. remember that. Um, and I do think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. I absolutely think it's a problem. I think, um, I think we have to be able to talk about the truth and we have to be able to talk about history in a way that is in, that is inclusive of those narratives that you don't always get. And we see what's happening now, right. With legislation that's passing in different States with people, you know, banning, you know, uh, AP African Studies or banning books or not wanting to talk about, you know, certain things, that is harmful. People are saying, legislators are saying, oh, well, we're doing it to protect children. You're not protecting them. What you're doing is you're setting them up. So in later in life, when they learn these things, they are going to be angry that they didn't learn them earlier. And it's not like you're going to sit in a kindergarten class and talk about genocide. You wouldn't do that. You do it age appropriately. Right <laughs> you you do it for what a kindergartner can handle, what a fourth grader can handle, what you know a high schooler can handle. you do it incrementally so that when they're leaving there, they leave with some sort of well rounded education, but I think we don't do it because we have a tendency in the United States to not want to face the truth. Mm. We just have this absolute uh problem with wanting to talk about the atrocities that were committed in order to get where we are now but if we don't talk about those atrocities those people who died or suffered or who were subject to some really horrible things their deaths are in vain and we haven't acknowledged that and I think that's important that's absolutely important um I hope one day we can get to a point where We can talk about these histories and talk about these hard truths and it's not like a me versus them kind of thing. It's a, hey, you know what? This happened. It's not okay that it happened, but let's acknowledge it. Let's learn from it and let's move forward and not repeat the same thing because if we don't learn from it, and I know it's that old cliche, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. Yeah. But we literally are repeating it Hmm. right now in this moment and so I think it's so important to learn that and plus uh, I mean I get people that you know in their 70s and 80s who come up to me after a talk and they're like I didn't learn that in school I'm so mad I didn't learn that I don't want people in their 70s and 80s to be angry I want them to live out their golden years and you know be happy like we shouldn't be doing this it's like it's lying it's it's willful lying and it's something that we have to stop
0: um Coming up, I, I know you mentioned earlier, too, about like uh, other other things that you're working on. But yeah. is there um, anything else coming up that you're working on or any future talks that you're uh, very excited about going into the new year and beyond?
1: Yeah. So after coming off a very, very busy, very busy November, <laughs> um, I have a little bit of a break, which is nice. nice. But um, I do have um, a couple talks coming up. Um one for sure, I know, is in January, and it is with um, Mountaintop Arborarium in Catskill, New York, and that is virtual, and then um, I have another one coming up in February for um, Black History Month that's actually going to be at the Northville Library, and it's going to be on the um, indig- Indigenous Peoples' Role in the Underground Railroad, which is really cool. Um, that also reminds me, I need to add some new research into it that I just came across. But yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. Yeah. Uh,
0: Heather, this has been uh, really great. Uh, we're just at uh, over an hour, so I'm going to get you out of here. Um, <laughs> but before we go, uh, for people to, who want to get in contact with you, I know earlier we were talking, you have a Twitter, you have an Instagram uh, you have a website. Yeah. Um, any other, are those like the best ways to get
1: Those are or? the best ways to get a hold of me. Um, Instagram, you can just, you know, get into those DMS. Um, I may not see the request right away, but I will uh, get to you. But if you want to email me the best ways to go to my website and click on the, there's like a, contact me button or whatever, click on that and it goes right to my email. Um, and I, yeah, you know, we can talk about anything, email me about anything. Um, and yeah, I'm just, you know, looking forward to talking with some folks. Nice. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Thank you very much uh, for doing this. Uh, this was a really great conversation. Thank you. Um, I definitely learned some things talking to you and hopefully in the future we could, I'd love to do it again.
1: Absolutely. Uh, anytime. Yeah.
0: This was awesome. Um, for everybody out there, uh, thank you very much for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Chitash. Take care, everybody.